Happy August, listeners. I am Brooke Warner, and I am here with Grant Faulkner, as always. And I think I can speak for a lot of folks when I say that it feels like we're holding our collective breath here as we look toward an uncertain fall. And then we're taking a break during the month of August, but we're seeing this season through by revisiting our favorite episodes from the past. Yeah, that's right, Brooke. And and I like just the uh, theme of revisiting in general as a way to to sort of relearn and remind yourself of what was good. And it was super fun to go back and re-listen to some of those interviews and really amazing to remember all the nuggets of insight and wisdom our guests have offered up. So we're rolling out our A plus August, partnering up uh, some of the best of the best by genre. Yeah, I love that we're doing this because it also gives our listeners an opportunity to think about genre generally, what you're writing, of course. And I hope also that this podcast inspires reading. And I'm so immersed in the land of memoir. And then if I'm not reading memoir, I'm reading fiction. And so many of our guests have prompted me to read outside my lanes. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I most appreciate about doing this podcast is how we're exposed to other genres, processes, ways of thinking about writing. You know, it makes me not just a better writer, but a better person. And perhaps that's what we should be striving for, actually, as we enter into our new fourth season together on Right Minded. I love that idea, Grant. Better readers, better humans. And better extraterrestrials. That's a bumper (laughs) sticker, Brooke. Right-minded, better readers, better humans, better extraterrestrials. Totally. Yes, on the bumper stickers. And so while we go get those printed up, enjoy your August and enjoy today's mashup A-plus August episode. Hello, everybody. We are back with Mary Carr. And Mary is an award-winning poet, essayist, songwriter, and memoirist from East Texas. She rose to fame in 1995 with the publication of her best-selling memoir, The Liars Club, which documented her hard-scrabble Texas childhood. And from there, she went on to write two more best-selling memoirs, Cherry and Lit. But first and foremost, Mary Carr is a poet, and she's written five critically acclaimed poetry collections to date, including her most recent book of poetry, Tropic of Squalor. In 2015, Mary released the best-selling The Art of Memoir, in which she synthesizes her expertise as professor and therapy patient, writer and spiritual seeker, recovered alcoholic, and black belt sinner. Uh, Mary Carr, thank you so much for being here. Oh, happy to be here. Well, it was one of my highlights of my career when I interviewed you back in 2015. And all I've been doing for the past five years has been trying to find ways to rope you into anything conceivably (laughs) memoir related. So I'm extra, extra thankful that you're on Right Minded. Oh, no. Happy to do it. Well, to get right to it, um, I wanted to start with talking about this wild impulse people have to write memoir. Uh, You're a hugely popular bestselling memoirist, but you also teach memoir. And so you understand the mindset of memoirists, at least to some degree. So what do you make of this memoir craze? What's it all about? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at uh, the middle of the last century and you see for all of our systems of truth, quote unquote, uh, begin to have quotes around them. You know, just think about the church scandals and Nixon and Watergate and bombing Cambodia. And we didn't and lying about it. I mean, we believed that, you know, uh, preachers weren't pedophiles and and uh, 
our politicians tell the truth and and their people went to church and there were systems of belief that everybody kind of concurred on and it was a much more homogenized system. And I think as those systems of truth began to have quotes around them, people developed a real appreciation for subjective truth, for a truth that's not that um, people always say, well, you can't remember everything. You don't, but you can certainly say how you felt. You can, uh, so I also think Freud, uh, the turn of the century publishing interpretation of dreams and the whole idea that your inner life, it's not just what happens to you externally. Uh, a lot of times I, when my mom was drinking, nothing horrible was happening, but I was like, you know, I felt like my hair was on fire because I was just waiting for the next, you know, jackpot. So um, I think people began to be, uh, feel that what was more true was a truth that was perhaps corrupted by, you know, flaws or prejudices or, but that if people could tell you how they felt that that had a power and an authority that, had not existed when there were so many objective truths that we all uh, cleave to. Well, Mary, memoir is a complicated genre, and I've heard you say it's a bastard genre. Um, it is a it's... bastard. It's really, <laughs> it's it's an ugly little genre. I mean, they hate us. Yeah, they hate us. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what my uh, my question actually uh, goes to. It's, it's not as elevated as compared to a novel and there's all this enthusiasm for memoir on the one hand, but there's also a clear disdain for it on the other. And it seems to be a genre that the literary establishment has a love-hate relationship with. And so I'd love to know more about your experience with this phenomenon. Well, I'm a, I really believe that every writer should be a student of history and literary history. And, and the first novels were considered really horrible and corrupt because they didn't have the moral authority of a sermon or philosophy or history or, or, you know, novels were quote unquote mere fancies and they were seen as, as really uh, morally reprehensible. They didn't have the form that po an epic poem would have. So to write something you just made up out of your head was seen as really creepy and corrupt, but novelists were writing about what people cared about. So there was a huge surge of interest in in fiction uh, as, you know, people like, you know, poets were writing about fairies and, you know, knights in armor. And, you know, Dickens was writing about, uh, you know, grubby little urchins, you know, crawling up people's chimneys and, uh, you know, Rob being pickpockets. And, you know, he was writing about these gritty urban realities that were were too coarse or grotesque for uh, exalted poets, you know, like John Milton. So, so um, you know, genres rise and fall. And I think a surge of popular interest, I think readers are usually smarter than critics. And, and uh, readers have taken to memoir with a vengeance because they're starving. Fiction has become more dystopic, more science fiction-y, more spectacular, more dystopian, more grotesque. I mean, if you look at those great novelists like Joyce, say, uh, and writers like Eliot, who were seen as hard to read, and being hard to read was like a mark of great fiction. Well, people are dying 
Yeah, right, literally right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are out of work and they have people around them sick and they don't know what's safe and where to go. And, and so I think occupying another person's heart. Um, also, I, I, memoir has a built-in advantage. The writer is very passionately interested in the subject. You know, you're, uh, nobody writes about themselves usually without a flamethrower on her butt. So, um, we usually come to it because we're really haunted and tormented. It's, it's way too hard to do just for fun. Yeah. So true. Well, I teach memoir and I reference the art of memoir all the time in my classes. And one of the more memorable lines from the book is advice you give to zip readers up into your skin it's such a vivid image. And I love this idea of zipping someone into my skin or being zipped into another person's skin. So could you say more about this from the perspective of good craft and why that's a helpful way to think about writing in scene? You know, Don DeLillo has a great line that novelists start with an idea and then man manufacture events to explain or justify those ideas. And a memoir starts with events and then comes to conclusions. Well, you know, people are pretty simple. I mean, as you know, I, you develop these ideas and theories about your life. I mean, one theory I had was that my father sort of left or abandoned me. And it's not untrue that he drank himself to death, you know. And my daddy was a, you know, Texas oil worker, great storyteller, barroom gambler, uh, brawler, great shooter of pool and thrower of dice. And, um, we were sidekicks and then we weren't. And I had all my life, I told myself this story that my daddy abandoned me. So when I started writing The Liars Club about my less than perfect, hard drinking, well-armed family, I just asked myself for external instances of reaching out to daddy and him saying, you know, no, I... I don't have time or, I mean, he had this stoicism that men of that generation had. He was born in 1910. He had been in World War II. He was recalcitrant. But I never asked him to come pick me up that he didn't show up. I never, and he asked me to go and do things all the time that I said no to. I was the one who left home. Nobody drove me to the side of the road with a piece of cardboard with a destination scrawled on it. I was the one who wanted to leave uh, East Texas. I got out of there as fast as I could. And so I left him. So you have to start, I think, by challenging those ideas. And then, as you say, find yourself in a scene, find yourself uh, in another body, in a, in a former body. And I think the way you do that is by challenging yourself in sensory memory. Um, the exercise I always give people is to, you know, close their eyes and imagine the smells in a kitchen they grew up in their mother's or grandmother's or even a neighbor, whoever, wherever it was the yummiest place you went, uh, it might be home, it might not. And to locate yourself in those smells and then start to interrogate your memory because smell is such a primordial emotional memory. You know, what can you hear? You know, what are your other senses? What is your body telling you? What do you have on? What are you wearing? I mean, a lot of boys don't remember what they wear, but girls from a very young age remember a lot, often remember <laughs> a lot of their outfits or get ups as my daddy used to call them. 
my little sun suit that tied at the shoulders with the yellow, you know, sunflowers on them. I, I, I remember that. And so, yeah, I think when you develop sensory or physical memory that you often do find yourself in time in a body that isn't your current body. And, and from that physical, those physical sensations, you can often find that old self and right out of that. Well, Mary, truth obviously matters in memoir, and it's a topic you spend a lot of time in, in the art of memoir. It's somewhat obvious that memoirs are supposed to be true stories, um, but I'd like to hear more about why you think the subject matter merits so much attention when it comes to teaching memoir. We live in an age where nobody wants to make a rule about anything. You know, any the, the American religion right now is doubt. Anybody, whoever believes the least wins. So, you know, to tell somebody you can't make things up. And, you know, in my experience writing, when I was trying to write Liars Club, uh, say, but it would later prove true for all my books, and I would try to, I knew I was going to use pseudonyms, so I would use the pseudonyms. And I'd be writing and I'd say, and John Sip, and then I would, it was literally as soon as I used the fake name, it was like a, a door slid shut in my memory. Like I couldn't remember stuff if I was using the fake name. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was like mm-hmm. psychologically, it turned off a spigot of images and, and feeling that was alive in me when I used the real names. So I had to write using the real names and then, you know, search and replace afterwards. But I, I think the same is true when you make things up. When you make things up, I mean, I'm thinking, who was the guy who told the big lie about everything? I, James Fry, a million little lies or whatever. For he was, you know, he had fistfights with cops and went to jail and is, you know, all this is kind of roostering around. But in fact, none of that happened. And I wound up writing an article about it for the Times. And he said, you know, oh, this this happens all the time. You know, this is from a great tradition. Most of the people I know who write memoir are highly motivated by some psychological thing that they really want to know what happened. I mean, I had to write things about myself I didn't like. I didn't want to represent myself. I was a crybaby. I was. I, I was a crybaby. I, you know, I was very sensitive and tenderhearted, and that was not an attractive quality in East Texas in 1965. But I, I had to say that. You know, I had to say that. I had to represent myself as I was. There were a lot of ways that I was and a lot of things. I shot at people with a BB gun because they pissed me off. I mean, that's not so savory. So I think the minute you start trying to represent yourself, confess the lesser sin to hide the greater and and become really involved in packaging yourself as uh, some right-minded or saintly figure. It's why I always tell people, I've never read anybody writing about their divorce who do, you know, who've done good jobs. I just, it's never happened. Uh, you're that person down at the end of the bar saying he slash she, you know, slash they did me wrong. And uh, it's, everybody knows who the good guy is going to be and everybody knows who the bad guy is, you know. It's, there's no surprise in that. And also no risk. If you don't tell the truth, you risk nothing. Well, that's an important 
takeaway for all memoirists. So thanks for that. And thanks again for all of this, Mary. I just have one final two-part question. Sure. Do you have a favorite among the three memoirs you've written and will there be a fourth? I'm working on a fourth right now. Yay. Yay. It's, <laughs> it's called Just You Wait. And it's about being a woman of a certain age and uh, kind of starting my life over at 60, moving back to New York City when I broke up with a guy I'd been with for 10 years and having to kind of reinvent my life at an age when most people are, you know, shopping for rocking chairs and vacation property. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So is it your favorite then, your fourth? It's my least favorite. <laughs> it's the one I hate the most. <laughs> it's the one I'm currently writing. I haven't thought about any of them in years. It's a sad, you know, I, I just never look at anything I write, any, anything. I remember you saying that. It's maybe a good strategy. Yeah, you just don't need to focus on who you were before. You're a different person now. Well, Mary, thank you. We're super grateful to have you. Thank you again, Mary. It was a treat. Okay, y'all take care. We have Elizabeth Gilbert with us today. And in Liz's critically acclaimed novels and popular nonfiction, she expands our understanding of creativity, spirituality, and love. Her memoir, Eat, Pray, Love, exploded onto the scene in 2006. A number one New York Times bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, has sold over 13 million copies. In her nonfiction treatise, Big Magic, Gilbert unpacks her own generative process and shares her wise, witty insights into the mysteries of curiosity and inspiration. And her newest bestseller is the novel City of Girls, a fiercely feminist story of a young woman coming into her own in the theater world of 1940s New York City. City of Girls is Gilbert's third novel and eighth book. Liz, uh, I shared with your agent, our mutual friend, uh, your speaking agent, that you're one of my most quoted people on this show. So to say that I'm happy to have you on Right Minded is an understatement. Welcome. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Brooke. So I wanted to start where we should, which is uh, with your new novel, City of Girls. It's fun. It's sexy. It's complicated. It's irreverent. You've said that it provided an escape from your grief in the aftermath of losing your late partner, Rhea. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share with us to start in what ways the writing of this book was different from your previous books. Well, the circumstances were so different. So just to put it into context, I had actually been working on this book in terms of doing research for it for uh, about four years, because that's usually about how long it takes for me to build up to get enough research done. I tend to write historical novels, um, and I need to learn a lot about the topic before I go in there. So I'd spent four years doing research on the theater world of the 1940s in New York City and showgirls and dancers and um, you know what the sexual climate was then, creating this whole story in my imagination. And then just when I was about to sit down and write it, um, Rhea was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic and liver cancer. And obviously that became the only priority. And so I put the book away for 18 months and just devoted myself to taking care of her until she died. And during that time, I really never thought about the novel other than thinking, who cares? <laughs> you know, like who could even begin to care about something like that? But then very quickly after she died, it's like I got some sort of a message from the mothership. I don't know how else to explain how inspiration 
moves through us, but I really did get my marching orders, which was um, write that book, go and write that really lighthearted champagne cocktail of a novel about sex and fun and frivolity and um, musical theater and dancers and showgirls and playboys and go disappear into that world. It will actually help you. And so the irony and the paradox is that I wrote the lightest, gladdest, hardest book that I've ever written from a place of darkest grief and loss. It's so weird. <laughs> um, and that book really isn't about death. And it really isn't, I mean, tiny little hints of it, but it really isn't about what I had just been through. It was about quite the opposite. And I feel like it was almost like a yin and yang of restoring my universe to balance, to come out of such a dark place. I had to go to such a light place and then I would be okay. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by this topic and, and this divide in the way books are categorized and marketed and how, yeah, how, how horrible it is really. Um, how in some ways men aren't invited in by the marketing to, to buy your books. And so I'm just curious if you go a little bit deeper with that. And, and why do you think there's such a struggle in the literary world to, to segment, um, you know, women's books and, and why they're, they're marketed pretty much to women only, as you've said. And yeah. um, I think you've spoken to your frustration with that. I wish I knew because I know that there was a moment back in the 60s where, where that wasn't happening. Like when Toni Morrison published a book, you know, in the 70s, it was a major literary event. Um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, there's a new book out for women. And to a certain extent, there are few female authors who, who are able to do that. Hilary Mantel is one, but, but again, her books are also about Thomas Cromwell. So <laughs> I guess, um, I guess, you know, they're, they're speaking, I guess people feel that it's safe that everyone is allowed to read them. Um, yeah, I don't know how it got so, I don't know how it got so gendered. Um, uh, I do wish I knew, I, I'm afraid I don't have a, a better answer for that. Mm. Um, I wish I also knew what the statistics were on how many grown-up adult men read fiction. I don't <laughs> think it's a very high number. Um, it's a really I think low number, I think. It's a really no, low number. I think they'll, they'll read nonfiction more commonly. Right. Um, uh, you know, but I, I, my friend um, Celeste Headley, who just wrote a book called um, Do Nothing, she's, she's an NPR reporter, and it's a fascinating nonfiction book and a, and a really interesting scientific investigation into how our overproductivity is literally killing us um, as a species, as a planet, and uh, and as individuals. And it's it's a very Malcolm Gladwelly book, you know. Um, but and she's a she's got airtight credentials as a as a lifetime journalist of very serious renown, and it's very well written, and the science in it is you know impactful and and thoughtful. And yet she was saying to me, it's just being marketed as like. A book for women who need to do less, you know, and, mm. and she said, I can't, there's nothing I could do to get those um, Malcolm Gladwell readers to read this. <laughs> um, yeah, there does seem to be some, some sort of an uh, invisible or imaginary line that it's really hard for, for, for the genders to cross in the literary world. It's so weird. And it also, I mean, there's also a part of me that's like, it's so silly. <laughs> you know? um, I'm, I'm just thinking of um, Henry Kissinger's famous line about why the, why the, the wars that go on in academia are so embittered. And he said, it's because the stakes are so low. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something about this conversation too, where it's like, Oh my God, who cares? We're, like guys just read books. We're lucky if anyone can get a book published. We're lucky if anybody can survive as an author. We're lucky if there are any bookstores. Why does this world also have to be on these weird, 
dumb arbitrary gender lines. <laughs> it's yeah. so it's so silly, but um, but it is the case. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because who knows what the consequences are? You know, it's like I have a a young reader, a nine year old son, and he picked up a graphic memoir the other day written by a female author. And I found myself being like, Ooh, 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 you know, just like, Oh, this is exciting. He's going to read this thing by this girl (laughs) author about her young life. And I didn't want to make too big of a deal about it. And I wondered about how many of my fellow parents might dissuade him from picking up that book. So, so it is. I wonder how old he'll be when he starts to notice it. You know, um, exactly. Um, if if not prompted, it, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I think we kind of put the kibosh on it sometimes. Well, it's uh, a conversation that I'd love to continue, but we do have one final question for you, which kind of takes us in a different direction, which is that you are a person who follows the thread of your inspiration, for sure. I mean, you're a genre jumper and you have your hands in a lot of different things. So you tackle big topics with your novels. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I'm curious to know if you have one innate trait and maybe one behavior that you cultivate that allows for this following of the threads of your inspiration to be how you pursue your creativity. Hmm. Yeah, I will. That's such a good question, Brooke. Um, If it's, if it's one thing, it's, it's how much attention I give and how much of my life I spend to, handling my own fear and my own fear is not inconsequential. Um, I've always been an anxious person and that's why I'm so fascinated by the idea of what it would look like for, for women to be relaxed because, um, so much of my life I haven't been. And it's why it's such an interesting topic for me right now and, and always, but I, I think that, um, you know, fear is the great killer of inspiration and and it's the the great interrupter of process and it's the joy killer right it, it's a murderer of dreams and i have a lot of it so in a weird way i've had an advantage where i've had to figure out over the years how to comfort myself reassure myself um be present for myself and and love myself um in that in those moments of fear and i've developed a a tactic for how I do it, which I'll, I always share. Cause like, I always tell people if this helps you, you can do it too. Cause it's not, it's, it's not something that I invented. It's kind of like, I feel sometimes it was just given to me by grace. But, um, years ago when I was going through um, a very severe depression and great deal of anxiety, I remember one night waking up in a lot of emotional pain and suddenly having this inspiration to open up a journal and write myself a letter from love and um, not romantic love, but but unconditional cosmic love. And um, to just say to myself in that moment of panic, all the things that I've always wished that somebody would say to me, you know, I, I love you, I've got you, I'm right here, I'm not going anywhere, um, it's okay if you don't feel well, I'll, I'll look after you no matter what, I'll stay up with you all night if you can't sleep, I don't need you to feel better, I don't need you to be anything other than what you are right now, you'll never be alone, I'll always be here with you. You know, just this voice of infinite compassion and tenderness. And I really have come to believe that the opposite of fear is not courage, the opposite of fear is self-compassion. And having kept that practice up over the years and almost every day of my life, I write myself a letter from love because almost every day of my life, I'm afraid. And, um, and so I'll start the day with whatever the fear of the day is. 
not hard to find because there's you know they're always there um and it always starts with me opening my journal and writing the words i need you and then the next words are always the same 20 years i've been doing this it's always the same it just comes out and the next words are i'm right here and um how can i help you and then i'll say what i'm afraid of and then I will write to myself the most loving, reassuring words from love to my fear saying, I can see that you're really anxious about this and I can see that you're really struggling with this and you don't need to know what the answer is right now and I've got you and I'm with you and I've been with you since you were born and I'll be with you till you die and I'll love you if, if this fails and I'll love you if this succeeds and I'll love you if you decide to change your mind. Uh, whatever happens, um, there you know you can't lose me. So just this very reassuring voice of self-love. And I think that what happens, I mean, I know that what happens because it never doesn't work is that if I can really bathe in that love, then the fear will rest. It, you know, it doesn't ever go away fully, but it will kind of fall asleep like a kid in a car seat, you know, like <laughs> that you're driving around the neighborhood at night with a lullaby, you know, it's like, it'll just stop screaming and it'll go to sleep and then I can do my work. And I think if I didn't have that really, really tender and compassionate, intentionally loving relationship with myself, I don't think that I could do any of the stuff that I do because I would be way too frightened and that fright would have a hold of me and I would never be able to take risks or to change the direction of my life or to try new things or to expose myself in ways that might seem vulnerable because knowing that I've got my own back and that, um, I'm kind of, I'm really intentionally the opposite of a self-destructive writer. Um, I'm a self-nourishing writer. So knowing that that no matter what else happens in the world, I've got Liz and I'm not going to roll her under the bus and I'll take care of her when she's afraid means that I can do scary things. I'm so glad you shared that, Liz, because uh, I saw uh, you did that exercise at the Napa retreat that I went to. And so we all wrote letters to ourselves from persistence and inspiration and courage and all of these things. And it's interesting to hear where that came from. And we actually spoke to it in today's episode during the beginning part before the interview. So I think um, I want to encourage listeners to adopt that practice because it's really profound. So thanks for sharing that. Sure. I'll, I'll, I preach that wherever I go. Because, <laughs> um, you know, the whole world is constantly telling you to love yourself, but no one tells you how. And so that's a way how right there. It's pretty direct. <laughs> uh, thank you for being with us today, Liz. We're super grateful. Thank you, Brooke. <laughs> and thank you, Grant. It's been yeah. lovely talking to you. Again, thanks everyone. We hope you're enjoying your summer and that you enjoyed listening to or revisiting these episodes. We have some really exciting special new guests coming up starting September 6th as we enter our fourth year of Right Minded, believe it or not. So while you're enjoying your summer, maybe also tell a friend about us. Help us continue to spread the word. In fact, Brooke, didn't we say that we were going to give a brand new BMW to whoever spreads the word the furthest? Yes, we totally said that, but we might have to downgrade it to like a CRV just because it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, please go for it. Spread the word. Thank you so much. And remember that we are in your feed all August and then for the rest of 2021 and then for the rest of 2022. Forever. And we're extremely grateful for your listenership. Happy summer, everyone. 